0: Amen. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you, Frank. Mm. Okay, well, if you'll open your Bibles to Acts 16, we'll be in there again in just a minute. Acts 16. Mm. Well, last week we began a study in the book of Philippians, as our brother made mention. And if you didn't make it, be of good courage. You only missed the first seven words. That's how far we made it. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And you can find that message in our sermon archive online if you want to get caught up to speed. We also spent a good amount of time getting our bearings on how the church in Philippi first got planted. God amazingly and graciously preserved the story for us in Acts 16. And in it, we saw that our God really is an incredible storyteller. And that when Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He was right. We can sometimes forget that gates, the gates of hell, are a defensive tool, not an offensive weapon. Jesus envisioned the church being on the offense, not the defense, as taking ground, not simply just trying to hold ground. Jesus envisioned the church as a redemptive force that smashes through the evil and the darkness. Jesus said it is hell that is on the ropes, not the church. He will build his church and no evil forces can stop it. And and as we saw the wild, unexpected beginning of the Philippian church, we saw that in vivid color last week. So if you missed it, here are the cliff notes. So Paul and some of his guys land in Philippi. On the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath, they go and they stumble upon a prayer meeting at a river, which tells us that there probably wasn't a synagogue there. So there are some women praying um, at a river. And Paul shares the gospel with them. And one of them is saved. Her name is Lydia, and she's baptized. And her whole household is baptized with her. And then as a response, there's this slave gal with a spirit of divination upon her that she was exploited for this spirit. And she's following around Paul and all of his uh, cohort. And she keeps yelling for days, it says. Listen to these guys because they're from the Almighty and they show you the way of salvation. We might think you'd want that proclaimed, but I guess after... A week or two weeks or however long it was, Paul, as the text says, was greatly annoyed. And so he rebukes this spirit out of her while well, the guys who were making money from her were not pleased with this. They could not profit from her. So they drag Paul and Silas into the city square. A mob breaks out. And T. Wright said somewhere, everywhere the apostle Paul went, a riot started. Everywhere I go, they serve tea. And we see that there. And it, the text says they are beating them and they're ripping their clothes off them. And then they're thrown in jail. Well, while they're in jail, rather than just licking their wounds, it says at about midnight they were praying and they were singing hymns together. And it said the prisoners were leaning in to hear this. And then God caused an earthquake to come to destroy the prison Worship really is our warfare. God wants us to believe that. The jailer, thinking everybody escaped, is about to kill himself. Paul says, don't, we're here. And he says, what must I do to be saved? The jailer says, and Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the jailer is saved, his whole household is baptized. It is an amazing church planting story. And then let us pick up in Acts 16, verse 33. To see what happened in a response, there it says Acts sixteen thirty three, and the jailer took them the same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds. That is incredible. He was baptized at once, he and his family. They, then he brought them into his house and he set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And in Philippi, we see not just God's amazing providence over his church going forward, but we also see the expansiveness of God's grace in this new gospel era that Christ has now inaugurated. This is what I mean by that. Remember that before Christ, Israel was God's chosen people. God's saving grace was, as it were, pulled up in that one nation, with a few exceptions. But through the Messiah, God's purpose was to break open the floodgates of his saving grace so that it poured out over the Gentiles. This is what the prophets had always predicted. This is from Isaiah 49.6. This is one of the, the servant songs. In the book of Isaiah, which is speaking of Jesus Christ, this is God saying, it's not enough for you to be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the, protect- the protected ones of Israel. So he's saying, that's, that's not enough salvation for me. I will also make you a light for the nations to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so in Philippi, we are seeing this prophecy fulfilled in real time. And remember, this whole Philippian scene is an especially significant moment in the prophecy being fulfilled, because as we observed last week, this is the first time that the gospel, that the kingdom of God is flowing over the border into Europe. Lydia and and her family were the first European conversions and baptisms, and then the jailer and his family. And guess where the gospel came from? To America. It, of course, came through Europe. So this church in Philippi is very important in our spiritual heritage, in the prophecies being fulfilled of the gospel going out into the nations. But something else we see, as we even refreshed ourselves with that Acts passage In Philippi, we see that the good news immediately starts to bear good fruit. This is what I mean. Consider for a quick moment some of the immediate fruit we see just in the Philippian jailer. He cleans the wounds of the one who just an hour before he was tasked with imprisoning. He invited them to his house and he made them a meal. This is, this is Christian hospitality. And it says that he and his family rejoiced in God. So we see the gospel, the good news, bearing good fruits immediately. The gospel is not just facts we assent to. It is the Lord giving us a new heart with new desires. And we see it beautifully in the Philippian jailer. Now this week, someone asked me, I wonder what actually happened to Paul because he's supposed to be in jail. Did, did they just let him go free without any questions? Well, for the sake of time, last week, we stopped reading, I think in verse 34. But what's fascinating is the text actually goes on to tell us what ended up happening. So before we leave Acts 16 for good and jump back into the letter, let's, let's finish this Philippians portion In Acts 16. We'll begin in verse 35. It says this, But when it was day, so this is the day after the earthquake, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrate said that you guys can go. Therefore, come on now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, "Um, No. They have beaten us. They publicly condemned us. Men who are Roman citizens. And they have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come tell me to my face. Let them come themselves and take me out. I love the Apostle Paul. Remember when I said last week that he was utterly human? Well, here we see it. He's not going to let them off the hook after public humiliation and a false arrest. Oh, and by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. You didn't realize that. But here's something that struck me as I considered this this week. We see here that, that he was very indignant about what happened. He He was not happy about it. And yet, remember, he was singing in prison the night before. He was able to stay poised, to not become dominated by his indignation. And the biblical word for this is self-control, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, something that the Lord produces in us as we submit ourselves to him including our emotions and our our reactions. We submit them to his providence. And Paul here provides a noble example of self-control, which is something that all of us, children, teenagers, adults, all of us are called to grow in. This is a fruit of the Holy Spirit working in us, where we start to feel the, the heat of life. Some stressor, some frustration, some relational tension. So it just came to mind, because I'm sure something did. When we feel the heat, rather than taking it as license for any number of responses which could appear justified through the Holy Spirit, we're able to stay composed. We're able to to govern ourselves in that moment. We're able to channel the response in a constructive way that builds rather than a destructive way that damages ourselves and our homes and others. Now imagine if Paul hadn't shown self-control, if he just gave full vent to his um, indignation and he, he became belligerent and hostile in prison, what would have been the response? No singing, no earthquake, no conversion of the Philippian jailer and his family, probably no church in Philippi would have been planted. Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-eight says, a man that is without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls, just defenseless and open to any attack from any angle. But self-control, as we see, is a powerful force in kingdom advancement. In this setting, a man who had a Holy Spirit wrought self-control, rather than becoming a city without walls, he was able to tear down walls of a prison, and God used it mightily. So Pilgrim Hill, I submit... If we want to do something extraordinary for the kingdom this week, let's be self-controlled. Know the thing that typically sets you off. Give it a name. And then pray every morning, God, help me in that place. Children, like I said, this applies to you. So your brother or sister is annoying you. And they so have it coming to them. So you have to do it, right? You don't. You can pray in that moment. You can say, children, God, please give me self-control like you did for Paul and help me, and he will. Or husbands and wives, this goes for us. When we're tempted to jab each other with a word that tears down, don't. Rather, bless and you will see God work through that simple act of self-control more profoundly than you can imagine. Again, we see something of that here in the founding of Philippians. Paul was impacted. We just saw that. He was incensed. He wasn't happy. He, but he let it be known in a, a, controlled, contru- a constructive way. Excuse me. And we see here that God blessed that immensely. Continuing on in verse 38 of Acts 16. So remember he just said, nope, not leaving. They can come say it to my face if they want me to leave. I'm going to force them to actually have a man-to-man conversation about this. It says, the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came, and I love this, they apologized to them. And they took them out and they asked them to please leave the city. (laughs) So they went out of the prison and they visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them. And then they departed. I love that. This is a good story. Never forget, God's the best storyteller. This is evidence. Again, we see a Christian core group forming here in Philippi, not unlike our barn days at Pilgrim Hill. God is bringing together a fresh outpost of his kingdom. And we see God's grace over the Philippians, even as Paul left his company and left the city. God allowed Paul's Roman citizenship to give him leverage and to give them standing and credibility with the authorities. And that is a huge thing. So God's fingerprints are all over this planting. Okay. Having gotten a little more background on Philippians and seeing how God's grace was manifest early on, and seeing some of the texture and some of the dimension of the church members, we now say goodbye to Acts, and we'll set our face again in earnest to this letter. So go ahead and flip over now to Philippians 1. We'll be in verses 1 through 2 again this evening. Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, that's where we landed last week, mainly on that word. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, again, this evening, we will spend our time in the introduction because there's still so much to look at. One initial observation from the greeting. Last week we looked at who the letter is from and reflected on the significance of Paul saying they were servants. And then we, of course, now see who it is to, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So Paul is writing to the Philippian church, and back then it was meant for them to receive the letter and then to read it out loud to the entire church And then he highlights some people specifically, namely the church officers. So we see that here where he says, with the overseers and the deacons. So those are the two offices that God has ordained to lead Christ's church. There are overseers, which includes pastor or elder. The New Testament uses those words interchangeably. These are biblically qualified men who have been called by God and confirmed by the congregation to shepherd and preach and rule the church under Christ. So that's who he's talking to when he says overseers. He's talking to the pastors. He's talking to the elders. And the second office in the church is deacons, which literally means servants. Now, we are all, of course, servants in the church, But deacons are men who have been set apart to formally serve the church in a variety of ways. And they help the elders with shepherding and with caring. And we see the first deacons coming in Acts 6, where they are caring for the the widows there. Okay, so those are the two biblical offices in the church. Paul's speaking to the officers as well, specifically. But the question we have to ask is why does Paul specifically say he's writing to them also in this letter? Well, one thing it shows us is that the church in Philippi had certainly formalized from its early days. And here it's worth saying a quick note about us at Pilgrim Hill. So we're still early on in our church plant phase. We're more akin to the Acts 16 Philippians, as I'm the only pastor officer currently But one of our first priorities under God's providence will be to discern what men the Lord is calling to be officers in the church. God intends for a church to have a plurality of formal leadership for care and for support and for wisdom and for accountability. So in the meantime, as we've talked about, our authority is borrowed from the elders at the Axis church, Or Joe Thacker, the pastor at St. Mark Reformed Church. So if you have an issue with me that you don't want to talk to me about, you can go to them for now. But our trajectory certainly is to have both elders and deacons. And that really is a specific prayer request that you can be praying for us at Pilgrim Hill. Um, The Lord calls officers in his church. And so pray that the Lord would make it clear and raise up men as overseers and deacons. So we see that the Philippian church had taken root and was now under godly leadership. But that still doesn't answer the question, why? Why does Paul address the officers in his greeting? Which is notable. This is actually the only time in any of Paul's letters that that he does that. So it's worth taking note. Well, we can't know for certain, but we can make an educated guess. And I have one. Though the overall thrust of Philippians is Paul's joy in ingratitude for them, we also know that there are some relational tensions within the church that are brewing underneath the surface. This comes vividly up in chapter 4. This is what Paul writes there. He says, I entreat, and this is interesting that he, he, named, he names names, <laughs> I entreat Judea, and I entreat, Cintiq, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, some leader, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. So that's interesting. This must have been a s- substantial issue because Paul is 640 miles away in prison and he doesn't have Facebook and he doesn't have Slack. That news had to travel every mile. And the fact that it made it into the letter shows us that there is some unity or fellowship in the church being threatened in earnest. It's enough for him to address it. And part of the job of the elders and the deacons is to mediate conflict, lest a small rift cause a fault line to form. But addressing conflict within the church, though necessary, is hard. It's hard. It takes courage and it takes humility. It takes the leaders being confident in the role that God has called them to. That's part of shepherding the flock. As the saying goes, sheep can have sharp teeth. So it could be that Paul is wanting to embolden and admonish the leadership to remember who you are. Remember that you're the overseers and the deacons here. Perhaps by addressing the officer in the greeting, he is also trying to humble these sisters beforehand. Addressing conflict not only takes courage, it takes, it takes humility. It takes them understanding that they are under authority. To say it succinctly, it's likely that Paul, in looking the officers directly in the eye during the greeting, was both looking to give them courage personally and give them honor corporately. And this is relevant for us at Pilgrim Hill in our early days because I can't promise you much, but I can promise you a few things. We will be grounded on God's word. We will seek to honor the Lord in our worship. And if we are to grow and flourish, there will be conflict to navigate. I can promise you that. And this will require courage and honor and humility courage to love each other enough to move in rather than moving on the first time conflict arises. That's one of the challenges of having so many church choices is you get offended and then you're just out immediately when that was actually the moment you could have really loved each other like the Lord has loved you. So I long for that for us to be those who can deal with conflict well. Again, we don't know exactly why Paul says this here, but when the Holy Spirit inspires a man to write scripture, no word is without purpose. And I think this is probably the most likely, in light of the context, why this being the only place he does this, he talks to the overseers and deacons. Okay, well now, in our remaining time, there's one more thing I want us to see from this wonderful greeting to the Philippians. And it's the gospel, because it's all over the place. This is a gospel-laced greeting. I said last week that Paul is a man who has been utterly transformed by Jesus Christ. Paul was saved dramatically by Christ, and he simply never got over it. He was a changed man, and he was a citizen of a new land, and so gospel is now Paul's native tongue, and he speaks it everywhere. He simply can't help himself. And to trace the gospel in this greeting, there are, there are three main words that I want to draw our attention to here, where we see the gospel at play. Yes, last week we saw servants of Christ Jesus, and that's a gospel identity. So we see it there to be sure, but I mean even after that. So in the remaining text, there are three words, and if you have a pen or a pencil, if you're into writing in your Bible, you can draw lines to them. You can draw from grace to saints down to peace. This is the flow of the gospel. Grace, saints, and peace. First, grace. Back in the text here, To all the saints in Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. As a spokesman for Jesus Christ, Philippians, my first word to you is grace to you. This is the first word Paul speaks to them. This is the first word Paul always speaks in his letter. Why? Because this is Christ's first word always to his church. Do you have ears to hear your Lord today? When Paul speaks, Christ is speaking. And his first word to the Philippians is his first word to us at Pilgrim Hill. And it is grace to you. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Paul says, grace to you, Philippians. And what does grace to you mean? Specifically, Christian. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Grace to you. That God sent forth his son who was born of a woman and born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Grace to you. That God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That is grace to you. That by grace, you have been saved. You've been saved. And this isn't your own doing at all. It's the gift of God. Grace to you. All of that is caught up in that first word that he always heralds. You have been sought out. You have been forgiven. You are redeemed. You will be glorified. Grace to you. And Paul is going to call the Philippians to some specific growth and maturity and sanctification, just like we are called to at Pilgrim Hill. But even here, the first word is always grace to you or as he says in philippians 2 he says beloved work out your salvation with fear and trembling how for it is god who is working in you christian grace to you we never graduate past grace Salvation, all of grace. Sanctification, all of grace. I hope when you read grace to you in a greeting, you never skip over it quickly again. This is the banner over the Philippians. This is the banner over us. Now, of course, we participate in the grace. Salvation is all of grace, which we take hold of by faith. And sanctification is all of grace, which we walk into by spirit-empowered obedience. Dallas Willard said it well. This is really helpful. He said, Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. We'll get to that concept more in chapter 2 when we get there. But for today, We hear in this introduction, Christian, before everything else, the banner over your life is grace to you. Christ wants you to hear that today, Christian. Grace to you. Now, going back to the greeting, look how grace has radically changed the identity of the Philippians. Because they have experienced the grace of God, who is the letter written to? It's not written to all the Philippians. It's not written to all the ethnicities in the church who are Christians. It is written to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Grace has changed their identity. The Philippians, through the gospel, have been united to Christ. They are together In Jesus Christ, this is the doctrine of union with Christ. Paul is communicating to the Philippians and to us this astonishing reality in a word that we hear so much, it's so easy to skip over, but we ought not. He is saying, everything that is true of Christ Jesus is true of you Philippians and is true of us. That's what union with Christ is about. We are in the eyes of the Father. Don't miss this. You are in the eyes of the Father, through your union with Christ, as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. This is what Paul is explaining. This is union with Christ. All the inheritance, the eternal joys of the kingdom of God that is coming to Christ because of what he accomplished, This is ours also. We are co heirs with Christ, co-inheritors with Christ. All the love and all the delight and all the pleasure that God takes in his beloved son is true of you as well, Christian. Why? Because you are united to Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says that. He doesn't have pre-written greetings that he stamps on. He is looking at the Philippians and saying, you are saints who are in Christ Jesus. This is doubly emphasized. You are the holy, set-apart ones who are caught up into the life of Christ. This is who we are. Our union with Christ radically redefines our primary Identity. And we are seeing right now what happens when the church forgets this. I believe so much of the hostility that is swirling around us and that is tearing the church apart at the seams is because we are doing precisely what our Lord forbade us to do, namely regarding each other according to the flesh, putting each other into different categories as this is your primary identity. You can't shed it. Paul wrote this so they would never talk like that. You're all saints who are in Christ Jesus. You think they didn't have an opportunity for conflict? Philippian jailers with Jewish women in the same church? Are you kidding me? We have to be done with the thought that our time is so different than any other time in history. The gospel levels the playing field. We are all saints who are in Christ Jesus. We're all born from Adam's blood. We've all been redeemed by Christ's blood. That is our identity. We're all the ones whom Christ has said, grace to you. Okay. In conclusion, as we finish tracing the gospel flow in this beautiful greeting, God says, grace to you, Philippians which has made you saints in Christ Jesus. And what is the practical result of that? Peace. Peace. Peace with each other and peace with God. Christ came to break down the dividing wall of hostility. That's not talking about between God and man. That's talking about between Christians. That's what he came to do. And I'm so tired of seeing the church tear each other down. We are all saints in Christ Jesus. Grace to you. Let us reclaim our primary identity. This is why Paul wrote that at Pilgrim Hill. We will not be a people who get caught up in identity politics other than the one identity. But we are all saints in Christ Jesus who have received grace totally unmarried. Pilgrim Hill, hear the Lord saying to you, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love how that text in Ephesians goes where he he came to tear down the dividing wall of hostility. And it said when Christ came, what did he come to to preach? You know, you can say it, you know. It's peace. It's peace. When Christ came, he came to proclaim not judgment, but peace with God and peace with each other. But peace is not something we can just conjure up, it's not some mental gymnastic. No. The peace of God comes from having a deep, unshakable confidence that his love for you is steadfast and that nothing can tear you out of his hands. So let us pray now for him to confirm that in each of us this evening. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would use it even now to conform us more into the image of the Son. We ask that you would make us a self-controlled people who can laugh in affliction and live lives defined by rejoicing. And we thank you for the way that we see the gospel laced throughout this Philippians greeting, that you have spoken grace over us in Jesus Christ. That is Christ's first word. That's the banner you've put over us, is grace. You have given us a new name. We are saints in Christ Jesus. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would cause a deep, grace-grounded peace to surround us individually and corporately as a community. Make our union with Christ a real vital thing. We are in Christ. and There's nothing that can take us out of his hand. We pray all these things through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit. One God forever and ever. Amen.